Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. What you're about to hear is a live recording of an event that took place at the Open Book Festival in September 2022. In this discussion, titled Understanding the Moment, Kyle Cohen, Karen Morn, and Zongezo Zibi reflect on the damage done to our institutions in the company of Aaron Bates. Here's their conversation. Welcome everyone. Don't be fooled by the music. This is not a meditation class, <laughs> but we will meditate on understanding the moment. Um, so welcome. It's such a pleasure to have the Open Book Festival up and running again after COVID. Uh, my name is Erin Bates and I will be convening this panel discussion with our fine guests. Um, we start on my left, Karen Morn, an award-winning journalist who writes for News24. She does also uh, do some work for the BBC and has obviously uh, given many, many analyses on SABC, Al Jazeera, you name it, Karen's done it. I like to think that Karen's one of those journalists who gives Karen's a good name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she yes. has come here all the way from Joburg at a crunch time in news, and we're very happy to have her, so Karen, thank you. Uh, left of Karen is Songezo Zibi, uh, who is a leading executive. He was the erstwhile editor of Business Day, which is my current employer, but we sadly didn't cross paths until today. Uh, he did also work with Financial Mail, which is a weekly magazine owned by the same group. He's worked in numerous capacities, including as a communications head for Absa Bank, uh, and is the founder of the Rivonia Circle as of the beginning of this year, and he will be telling us more about that in due course. And then on my far left is Kyle Cowan, who is the author of um, Sabotage, which is one of the three books on the table and obviously as uh, the subject of this discussion. Kyle Cowan, too, award-winning journalist, two-time uh, co-winner of the Taco Caper Prize. He is a member of the investigating team at News24 and uh, much like Karen has been digging into the energy crisis that besets our country. Uh, so between the two of them and Songhezo, who has written really a proposal on how to look forward and change the public discourse and approach to some of the dilemmas in South Africa, we'll be looking at understanding the moment. So just to go through all the book name drops, we've done Kyle with Sabotage, Songhezo's book is called Manifesto, and Karen's is Nuclear, which you did in collaboration with Kirsten Pearson, and uh, we're very happy to have you all. Okay. So I thought I'd start off by confessing that I spent most of the last 12 hours skim reading and, you know, speed reading through your books once more. And um, I think something that really struck me, Songhezo, at the end of your book is where you talk about your why, effectively. Uh, you recognize a school friend of yours and your uncle who were both late because they were murdered by security forces during apartheid. You speak about your home village and the why of your writing your manifesto. Could you share a little bit of that? And while you do, Karen and Kyle, I'd like you to think about your why with your books. Thanks very much, Erin, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, so, yes, I think the way, the best way to put it is that we all informed by, or shaped by our past scars in one way or the other, um, just like nations and countries are. and those scars give us a sense of meaning to, to our lives and the things that we need to do. And the choice we have 
is, is, to, is to either let those continue to hurt us or use them as a basis of doing something constructive. In my case, there was always a, a deeper national purpose to, to the people whose lives were lost that were very close to me. And I think the positive, positive thing to do is to continue on that journey because our country remains in trouble or is in trouble again, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what those experiences do is they did is they made me think about how I can dig deep again to find the positivity and the optimism in the future by betting on myself and many other ordinary people uh, that, can, that can carry out that task. Karen, for you? I think, I mean, that's an amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I have so much respect for Zangezo, and the book is absolutely magnificent. You should read it. Um, for me, it was about writing what I regard, and I think many people regard as the ultimate attempted act of state capture, which was the Russia-South Africa nuclear deal. Um, and I think that that story speaks to a lot of where we find ourselves as a country now, um, where we don't seem to have a coherent kind of political or national identity, because essentially, for the longest time, as we've heard from the state capture inquiry, we've been up for sale to the highest bidder against the interests of us as ordinary citizens and people of this country. And I think that what the book makes clear is that a lot of that, uh, the drive behind the nuclear deal was driven by completely um, you know, neurotic or paranoid delusions of grandeur from the former president, but also it involved a demonization of people who were just doing their jobs, just asking the right questions and acting in the best interests of ordinary people um, and the kind of terrible consequences that they faced, but also the fact that ultimately it wasn't necessarily politicians that led to the deal being stopped. It was two middle-aged women and a really, really smart court case, again reinforcing just how important our judiciary is. Yes, and the judiciary is something Songhezo touches on in his book in an interesting way. Kyle, your why for this book? I did it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> that is remarkable to hear in this climate. I'm so pleased. I, I didn't do it for the money. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but do there buy is no money. No. <laughs> um, no. So, as part of my work for News24, we spent almost a year digging through this massive trove of documents we called the ESCOM files. And in, in your daily reporting and you sort of writing stories continuously, you always lose that bigger narrative. You always lose the opportunity to tell the big picture story. And it was, the book was a natural progression of that work. You know, we were in the trenches for a year, like literally visiting power stations, looking at how these things work, trying to get a hands-on understanding so that we can relay that to our readers. And then something clicked in my mind. My grandfather actually worked for ESCOM for almost 25 years, and I thought, well, you know, is there a singular problem in this country that unites poor, middle-class, and rich alike, such as having no electricity? Mm. Is there a greater danger posed to this country? We have so many problems that we have to deal with, but our most immediate danger is a situation where we literally have a blackout for two or three weeks. Mm. And that is a, not only a security risk, it's a human rights issue as well. And you, know, you think about the hospitals that have to go without electricity, you try and think of cooking your food, getting anything done. And, and then you start to understand that the reason why ESCOM is broken. 
And that's really what this book is about. It's not just about people breaking power stations on purpose. It's mm -hmm. how the system became so fragile through mismanagement and corruption mm -hmm. that you know, the central argument of the book is that the ANC government's policies over the last 20 years are responsible for the mm -hmm. sabotage at ESCOM. Which leads to Songhezo's sort of thesis in many ways, because you are incredibly forthright in calling the ANC out for its failures. And I think just to sort of say why you should buy all three books uh, while you're here at the Open Book Festival, Songhezo, your book almost provides a, a bigger frame. You touch on various issues that are sort of eroding and have eroded South Africa's sort of order as much as we might have had it or hoped to build it. Kyle, you give sort of very concrete examples within ESCOM and the role of some of the executives and board members. And then Karen, you bring in this geopolitical element in terms of one effort, paranoid adult as it may have been, to try and find a way to just, in a moment, solve, solve the power problem. So, Songhezo, to your book, uh, you open dealing with the division around xenophobia and a sort of uh, stoking of really populist politics in South Africa at the moment. Could you just touch on that? Yes, I think we are in a, in a dangerous moment, I think, uh, just in terms of um, whether we can secure the peace uh, in South Africa again. And I see, see there are quite a few people who voted in 94 here. Uh, I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm one of them. And, and I want to remind you that, uh, as I said yesterday, that there were two objectives in the 1994 project. The one was securing the peace, because South Africa was very, very violent, as you know, political violence. That's why we were called a miracle eventually. The second was achieving political freedom, the right to vote, basically. Those were the two main objectives. And we fashioned a series of arrangements, constitutional and statutory arrangements, which I believe have contributed now to the situation that we have, because we were dealing with the exigencies of the time. They gave us a closed party list system for instance, so that everybody could get represented, even if they've got 50, 60,000 votes, they could still get a seat in parliament. That, that was the deal, that was a priority. What that has given us is a situation where we don't even know who our MP is, who represents us in parliament, and therefore they can do whatever they like for five whole years. And so the dysfunction that has led to the destruction of the economy is giving us the Operation Dudulas. It's giving us the levels of corruption that we see, not just in politics, but in the public service. But it's done something else. It's caused political parties to be so dominant that there is no national identity and spirit and purpose anymore. Mm. People in the political sense identify themselves chiefly either through their parties or their dislike thereof, but not on being South African. And when you don't have that sense of being, it's very easy to be mobilized to hurt other people through xenophobic attacks, or even just advocating that we become a country that lets people die in hospitals because they're not South African. Just, just the violence of that act and that possibility that you're going to let somebody die in a corridor because they're not South African. And so my point is that we really got to understand how these things were telegraphed. Mm. 
unwittingly in many instances over a long period. And I think we need to reflect on that. And in the book, in the beginning, I reflect quite a bit on the last uh, 27 years. Quite a bit indeed. Um, I think in both of your books, you find people who have a deep sense of civic duty against incredible odds, whether it's people inside National Treasury, at NGOs and civic organizations, in the the legal field, and then also people working at ESCOM. And Kyle, you deal with the, the demographics, the, the racial dynamics of two executives in particular, but also their civic duty. Can yeah. you talk about their motivations? Yeah, it's an interesting one because as everyone in the room knows, the current CEO of ESCOM and his second in charge, the chief operations officer, uh, Andre de Reiter and Jan Oberholzer, they're both white men. Um, and it's something that, you know, I, I, I discussed this, you know, at length with the board chairperson, Professor Machoba, because I wanted to understand in the climate as it is today, where appointing a white person into any position of power is not only seen as problematic, it just wasn't done. It, it just didn't happen, really. Maybe in the private sector, but mm. in public sector, big no-no. And even you know, the public enterprises, Minister Praveen Godan took a massive amount of convincing that it was the right decision. And Professor Machoba came back with a very interesting argument, and he said to me, they were appointed on merit. They looked at the applications, and you'll remember that there were some big names being floating, floated around at the time for ESCOM CEO, and none of them were brave enough to take the job on. Mm. One person at least was offered the job and walked away, and I can't say who. Um, and oh, I don't come blame, on, Kyle. No. <laughs> Give us a clue. I, I've been sworn to secrecy, but I can say that the person was, was pretty much in every newspaper headline as being the next ESCOM CEO. Mm -hmm. And... What the writer told me when I interviewed him for this book is that he, he sees it as his second national service. He, he did national service when he finished um, high school while he was still studying. And he was presented with this opportunity to, to take his, his brain and his energy and go to ESCOM and at least try. I don't think he's been enormously successful because of the absolute pushback that he's been getting internally and even you know, active sabotage campaigns to try and make the president look bad, to try and make Gordon look bad. And this is the reality that he's having to deal with. He's having to try and deal with 400 billion rand in debt. He's having to try and split ESCOM into three, organized, you know, three separate businesses. And he's now having to try and run old broken power stations while they're being broken on purpose by people who don't want him to succeed. Mm. And that is literally what he does day in and day out. He, he catches, for example, a 500 million rand tender just before it's awarded to a guy who has a house in Boxburg and no infrastructure to absolutely do anything for ESCOM. And he stopped it literally just before the signature was put on paper. That's his day in and day out. And what I've noticed from this is that despite all of that, there are a clear set of goals and there is a clear determination to get it done. Doesn't matter what gets thrown at him. And I think that's the kind of South African we need. We yeah. need people who are willing to put themselves on the line. And that determination against all odds and, and fielding like such pushback and sort of vitriol is something that you deal with in your book as well. And insiders in National Treasury, for example, pulling strings, pushing the line to just, or holding the line to just ensure that something which goes to a trillion rand, which is, an, is a kind of preposterous figure, you know, didn't happen. And people in, in this um, civil society as well. 
Well, I mean, what was fascinating was when I interviewed um, Tina Jumat peterson who obviously people have a lot of opinions about, she essentially said that the um, energy department officials at the helm of the nuclear project had told Jacob Zuma that he could go about this procurement completely excluding National Treasury. Mm -hmm. So that they were brought in, you know, almost to try and rubber stamp on the issue of, of the funding model, how it would be paid, like right at the end. But when they did become alerted to the fact, you know, when, when there was this debate around the, the extraordinary tax concessions that were being offered to Russia, um, they then do this, this thing of keeping the paper trail. Mm -hmm. And it's so important, I think, that it's one of those things that, you know, not all activism is standing on picket lines. Sometimes the most profound forms of activism are just saying, we will do this as it is meant to be done. We will not take shortcuts. We will not be eroded. We will not be intimidated. We will demand that this, if you are going to do this, as Pravin Gordon said to Zuma in one of the meetings, you know, if we don't do this right, it's going to make the arms deal look like a Sunday school picnic. And, you know, they, they just, they basically did their job. But in South Africa, in that context, even now, that's revolutionary. And um, the other thing that I thought, you know, and, and in Tlanta Nene, I mean, I spoke to him, and I said, you know, a lot of people think you were extremely brave. And he said, it's not a thing of being brave. It's a thing of what do you fear the most? And I feared betraying my country more than I feared the president. Wow. Um, wow. And I think that, that that was the thing, that, you know, with this common thread of, of people who just quiet, introverted officials who just held the line, held the line, held the line. They didn't want to let the country down. They were real patriots. And then Makoma Lakalakala and Liz McDade, who were the environmental activists who brought that really, really smart litigation, that the, at the time, no one understood just how important it was. Franny Rapkin says that the day that the court judgment, the Russia nuclear, the court overturned South Africa's intergovernmental agreement with Russia, that front page was one of the poorest selling of the Mail and Guardian edition ever. No one knew what had actually happened. But McCormick talks about people phoning her and saying, who are the white people behind you? Their offices were broken into. Their website was hacked. They were threatened. They were called. And she said, getting back to what Praveen Gordon had said, that we learned from the arms deal. People were still asking questions, and the deal went through. And we decided we're going to stop the procurement before it can even happen. And just, you know, David Unterhalter was the person who argued that case, pro bono. Um, all these people who just quietly, in a completely unheralded manner, put the country first. And I, I think that was one of the most extraordinary aspects of the story. I wanted to ask you about that, just reading it in the book. Do you think that work that Unterhalter did, which was so critical to blocking a sort of darling project of the former president had any bearing on his interviewing for a position on the apex court and the kind of heat he underwent? It was very clear that the Judicial Service Commission didn't want him in the running. And he remains one of the most, it, I don't know if it's, if, it's, if it's a racial issue or if it's just an anti-intellectual issue. Because an he deal? I mean, yeah. the, the nuclear deal, do you think it played any part? 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, I found the, the level of attack that he faced quite intense. And I mean, it, you know, intensely from, you know, the, the EFF representative as well. And this idea that, um, you know, obviously in the, in the second interview, it became very apparent that there was, he was never, ever going to be shortlisted. But it was extremely sad, given what he had done for the country and the kind of intellectual force and ethical vigor that he displayed in the past. He should have been up for that position, and he wasn't. Um, Songhezo, you talk a lot about the professional class and the role it plays in your vision and your manifesto for a way forward. Before we get to it, though, Karen, your book starts with a kind of Shakespearean uh, sort of drama around um, conspiracy and murder plots and Russian sort of involvement in a scheme and then medical help. And Kyle, the intro to your book is also quite powerful in terms of the opening scene. Just give us a, a sort of vignette and then Kyle, please do the same. So essentially, basically the book starts with um, Jacob Zuma's former wife uh, estranged wife at the time, Ma and Julie Zuma, being accused of poisoning him and describing in a statement to the Hawks how he takes her into the room and asks her, you know, if she's been in contact with foreign intelligence agents. Um, and through her statements to the Hawks and the law enforcement authorities and Zuma's own statements on this in 2020, this extraordinary story of how he believed that the CIA was attempting to poison him and how he had been healed from this alleged poisoning, of which there is no medical evidence, by Vladimir Putin, quote unquote, my friend, in another country. Um, and that this had happened literally, I think, a few days, probably 13 days, before we signed the intergovernmental agreement with Russia for the nuclear deal. So the entire thing was a project that had been some time in the running, but it was bought born out of his own narcissistic delusion, I would argue, that the CIA was trying to kill him. And I think something you articulate really well in that section and throughout the book is taking seriously that paranoia yeah. and that anxiety and contextualizing it and how it then has bearing on South Africa's geopolitical decisions or decisions with geopolitical consequences in terms of our energy plan. I think, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me because some of the biggest opponents of the nuclear deal at the time were the EFF. And suddenly, you know, I mean, it's fascinating that, you know, from being so vociferous in their, in their questioning of this deal, which was, remains completely unaffordable for us, they then switched to advocating for the Sputnik vaccine. And then extraordinarily saying that our energy solutions lie with Russia and China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the schism, the Russian geopolitical influence on this country is very real, very present, and it's at the heart of a lot of the division within the ANC. And it means that our country geopolitically has a very strange identity. We've seen that with the Ukraine. And I think that there needs to be a constant vigilance, specifically in the absence of any declaration of political party funding by the EFF, as to what exactly that influence may be and how it may be happening. And I think that we as citizens have a right to know um, about that kind of influence over decisions and whether parties are genuinely of the belief that this is a solution or if there's something more dark and sinister behind it. But indeed, like that, that kind of belief 
that you know, someone, the CIA, was trying to poison Zuma meant that anyone who said, wait a minute, we're worried about the funding, we're worried about the costs, wasn't seen as someone who was just doing their job. They were seen as the ultimate foe of Zuma, and they were lambasted, they were fired, they were dismissed, they were hounded, they were threatened, because you were coming not out of a space of, this is a person doing their job. You were coming out of a space of, they're aligning themselves with a murderous plot against me. Mm. And that was Zuma's belief, or it seems to have been. And one of the things you highlight is where there's a sympathy within the ANC and within government on some potential energy solutions that is very pro-China, pro-Russia. And Kyle, in your book, you deal with, um, I think it's um, Derater's sympathy for Western support, which he takes at face value as being all in good faith. Um, but tell us about the opening scene in your book and the kind of key sabotage case, and then if you can talk on that as well. Sure. So um, the book starts literally with the words on a stormy night in mid-November 2021. Very, um, I, I try to make it as dark as possible. Um, Lol. And, and what had happened in November of 2021 is a 23-meter-tall electricity pylon that carries power lines from another power station to Latabo power station's coal conveyors. So Latabo has about five kilometers of overland coal conveyors. It gets the coal from stockpiles to the actual power station. Now, um, ESCOM, having had rather quite a number of clever people working for it over the years, they had two sets of lines running to these conveyors to make sure that if something happened with the one, the other one would continue working. And the two lines are sort of on a, on a five-meter sort of embankment. The one is below and the one is on top. And what happened with the one underneath is there was eight steel supports that held this up in case the wind got hectic or a tornado went through. It does happen. Um, and all eight of those steel supports were cut, and the pylon had been pulled over onto the one on top of the embankment. So it fell the wrong way, mm. right? Um, that effectively, on that day, there was already stage two load shedding in place. Um, Latabo power station had about four and a half hours of coal left inside the bunkers, which could still feed the power station. And it took, you know, some very, very fast working engineers to try and reroute power from another power source because you couldn't just fix the pylon in time. It, you know, you have to reset the foundations and everything. It's a whole story. Um, and they managed to avoid stage six load shedding by an hour and a half for, for that next morning. Um, but and, you and highlight that it must have been someone inside who it, knew the setup, knew the details. Yeah. Look, if you, if you, if, I don't know if, how many people have ever actually seen a power station. Massive place. Um, it's got a lot of land around it as well that belongs to ESCOM that's fenced off. You can't really access it. To get in there, you really have to be trying. Now, this particular pylon is about two kilometers away from the power station, just under two kilometers, and it's hidden in and amongst all sorts of other pylons. It's, it's standing right next to a whole lot of other ones, the big ones that obviously carry power to the, the, the distribution yard. They're, they're all right there, and they just cut one, just one particular one. So that was, and, and at that point, you know, having, work, having been working on ESCOM for so long, Sabotage is something that's mentioned quite often because, you know, there was the famous bolt in the, in the, in the boiler at Kuburg, um, you know. Um, and since then, whenever anyone at ESCOM says sabotage, then people go, ah, you know, whatever, we don't believe you. And this time, there's actual photographic evidence of these stairs that were cut with some kind of power tool, you know, 
a cordless grinder at Builders Warehouse. I thought, no, this is crazy. So I checked. A cordless grinder at Builders Warehouse is about 1,500 rand, and you can cut one of those stays within a minute. So you're looking at someone within 15 minutes can cut those stays, hook a bucky up with a line, pull the pylon over, stage six load shedding. And that can all happen within half an hour if you know what you're doing. And, you know, this, this comes back to, again, just horrible decision-making over many, many years. We look at Madupi and Kusile. So the entire reason why South Africa needed a nuclear power station was because we didn't have enough capacity. Yeah. So in 1998, um, and I've seen the documents for this, this is true, in 1998, ESCOM goes to government and say, we need to build new power station as in now. Because you've got us on a social compact mm -hmm. to deliver electricity to homes that we've never delivered electricity to because we were racists. So now we're going to give these people electricity as if it's you know, such some fantastic thing, but we're gonna do it at a rate of 300,000 homes per year. And you're literally dealing with a power system that was built for the select few white communities who had access to electricity, and you're expanding that nationally. And you're doing it very, very quickly. Yeah. And so ESCOM said, okay, well, if we're going to do this, we need to build new power stations at the same time because we're literally going to run out of capacity by 2007. Government didn't listen to ESCOM. By 2007, we ran out of electricity. First load shedding happened. It's like, you know, 101. Tabo Mbeki goes on stage in Bloemfontein at a fundraising thing, and he says, look, I'm sorry, we should have listened to ESCOM. Didn't listen to ESCOM. But they did start building new power stations in about 2004, six years too late. Mm. And then with Madupi and Kusile, the way corruption is, they say, okay, well, what's the cheapest way that we have to generate electricity? Nuclear. Where are we going to get it from? Oh, well, the French are going to bribe us some more, but the Russians are going to build it quicker and cheaper, and it might not last as long, but we'll get more money in our bank accounts overseas somewhere. And that's effectively my understanding of what happened and why Rosatom was brought in. They were willing to pay bigger bribes. So quickly on the Western sympathy from Dereta, and then I'd like to move mm. to Sungezo again. So, so Dereta is, is someone who's worked in Europe extensively. He's also worked in China uh, for a number of years. He's done a lot of business work overseas. You know, obviously he worked for Sassel. And he has had a lot more interaction with the Americans, with the French, with the Germans. He understands that they have political scorecards to tick in terms of funding other countries, you know, with green energy, with, with whatever they, is on their ever political agenda for, for that term that they're in. And he has sought to capitalize on that with the Just Energy Transition and the COP26 money. He's effectively, he and Mandy Rumberos of ESCOM single-handedly raised 131 billion rand in funding and then had the government take that away from them as soon as they had a signature on paper um, so that the ANC government could again do what the ANC government does, does best and, you know, pardon my French, but just come to fuck everything up and steal all the money. And now we're sitting with a situation where we should have started building new transmission lines for solar and wind power in the Northwest and the Northern Cape, but we're gonna build green hydrogen and you know, do some nonsense with electric vehicles because that's what the government wants. So the real question is not, why are we still seeing other countries as enemies when our own worst enemies are sitting in the union buildings? Well, Songezo, you pull no punches uh, in talking about the ANC, and your book really toward the end is about the action plan, you know, the manifesto, the final sort of culmination of a very discursive book that's almost like sitting with a really well-informed, I don't know, news editor and getting their views on, on many issues at play. You, you give us an action plan and you say, please vote in 2024, 
don't vote ANC, but also coalitions won't work. So what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me, I'll come to that question. I need to pick up on something that Karen said, in fact, about David Unterhalter specifically. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to give a sense of, of the damage that, that occurs and sets in without us realizing. So David Unterhalter is one of the most preeminent uh, antitrust lawyers in the world. And when the Judicial Service Commission has to do its work, it has to take account of the skills that the bench needs. So they have to be tax lawyers, they have to be competition lawyers, they have to be all manner of things. So the, the, the constitutional court bench has to be able to handle properly the full range of the legal matters that come before it. And this is where I think tough conversations are necessary in our country in the context of the past from which we come from and how much it's still with us. So there is a question that gets asked at the Judicial Service Commission of every white male candidate and possibly every white candidate. What has your contribution been to transformation and training black advocates and so on? It's an important question. I don't want to trivialize it. But at the end of the day, it cannot be the deciding question where you have a single candidate who has skills that the court does not have and the court desperately needs them. Because the conversation you're having with that person is about the past. It's not necessarily about how they apply the law in respect of the matters that would come before the court. And so what happens is we have potentially a miscarriage of justice down the line where the court has been deprived of the level or type of skills that it needs in order to adjudicate over legal matters in South Africa. So that's my personal disappointment about the, the, the non-appointment of David, David Unterhalter to, to the Constitutional Court bench because I am not sure that the Constitutional Court now has somebody with that level of uh, experience and skill with antitrust matters mm. uh, that David Unterhalter has. And we must think about how this sort of thing has led to an erosion. You, you'll remember in the last round or the one before last, there was a case of a judge who, a, a candidate, who heard a matter in the parking lot of a spur. And I think we all laughed about it. And this person was not appointed. It's not funny because you have to ask yourself, how does that kind of person even get shortlisted to the point where yeah. they are at the interview and we have to find out about it? What, is, what has been the quality of the other candidates such that that person has made the shortlist and this is how damage to institution occurs without us noticing, because mm -hmm. just because that person did not make it onto the bench, you're, not, you're assuming that the other candidates are possibly the best, but maybe not, because even this person made the shortlist, mm. yes. right? And if it's a shortlist, you have to ask how bad the other people who didn't make it onto the shortlist were, but also applied anyway, right? Mm. So all I'm saying is that there are all of these issues that appear to, uh, to, to be abstract, mm. but we need to reflect very deeply on their meaning 
about what we about what we about what we need to do. So on to your question. Mm. I just want to say on that though, I mean Karen, you were also in the room for a lot of the JSC interviews. So it is another institution. I think we can understand the moment of the judiciary as well while we're here. Um, but I do think Songezo, it, it is something you raise in the book as well in terms of what you call the professional class, but a lot of people who work in the legal field, including women of color who have you know, incredible skill and opportunity and value to add, just don't think it's worth the hassle. It's such a thankless job to work for the state. It's something that comes up in the ESCOM book as well, that people are like, it's such a lost, it's a terrible kind of apathy, but I do think that exists in legal circles. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on the JSC interviews and then we can maybe get to how we're going to vote yeah. in 2024. <laughs> no, I think Zongezo's point is absolutely true. And I think, I think Eusebius Makaiser has made this point as well, is that you always have to have space for excellence. And he is excellent. And he would have been a very valuable addition to the constitutional court. And when you consider, you know, and one candidate in particular who was shortlisted with a very, very shaky track record, um, you know who I'm talking about, um, it, it was absolutely extraordinary. And also, you know, you must remember David Unterhalter was understandably making a fortune as an advocate. He went into the judiciary as an act of public service, and then what happened happened. And that is something I think we should all feel suitably outraged about. And he kept coming back, which is, again... Yes, because he, he really wanted to make a contribution. And, you know, he was denied that space. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, we know the, my book, like, what, you know, we know the importance of the judiciary in this country. And I think that we can see that there has been an arguable and definitive project to erode and undermine judges who show integrity, like Daya Pele, who was hounded out of a constitutional court in, uh, interview by Mokhweng Mokhweng and others on a completely baseless level, um, to hound out people who show intellectual vigor and ethical strength, like David Unterhalter, and to basically send a message to judges that unless you're prepared to toe the line for people like Julius Malema, you're not gonna make it to the bench. And we as citizens need to say that's not good enough because we want a strong judiciary. We want judges who will, for instance, overturn the Russia-South Africa nuclear deal with a clear, coherent judgment that can't be appealed because they are acting in our interests, not in yours. And they're acting on the basis of the facts and the submissions and the legal argument within a framework. And I do think that's also sometimes lost. But now I'm getting tempted to contribute where I meant to facilitate. Yes. So, Songezo, you touch on the judiciary. I believe there is a point in your book where you argue that it's also fielding political spats and dealing with factionalism in ways it really shouldn't have to. Um, any feedback or input on the judiciary aside from the JSC interviews and then some action we can take? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I think... I think it was a Jeremy Gauntlet, uh, Advocate Gauntlet, some years ago, and he gave a lecture somewhere. I, I think Pierre DeForce has got the lecture somewhere, uh, or he's blogged about it uh, on, his, on his blog. And he spoke about the, the damage, the long-term damage that is done to the judiciary standing in society if it handles too much political litigation. Mm because it begins to be seen as a player in the political space. And that's occasioned by, by political actors who act in bad faith, basically, such that the, the judges always have to tell them what their job is and how to do it. They always have to tell them what the constitution of their party says and how to apply it 
and that sort of thing, right? That's not a good thing. So this judiciary that we brag about and we say at least we still have the judiciary, it's not a good thing to rely on the one arm of the state. All three of them have to function and function properly. Mm. Apart from the judiciary, the two rely entirely on a functional politics, which means you need political actors who are capable, who love the country, who do their best to act in the best interest of the country. Because ultimately, they also get to choose who the chief justice is and who the, you know, all, all the other judicial officers anyway on the bench get chosen ultimately by the politicians or significantly with political input. That's how we got uh, former Chief Justice Mohuang Mohuang, right? And so it's important, and I'm now uh, segueing onto your question, that we get a functional politics. What has not happened in South Africa, and this is our most important project, what has not happened is democratization. If we go back to the first point I made about securing the peace and also political freedom, what has not happened is building a democratic culture mm. of, of, of democratic accountability to the people. You can't do that with a bad electoral system because that's not gonna work. So that needs to be a core political issue for all of you in the room. It's great to, to have a city of Cape Town with less load shedding than anybody else, but guys, it is important that you know which MP you have voted for. It is not normal to not know. Yeah. And that MP cannot depend on which party you belong to. Because all of those people, once they get past the post and they are now sitting in parliament or the legislature, they no longer represent their political party. They represent the people mm -hmm. in different ways and they must execute their work accordingly. And I would say the Standing Committee on Public Accounts with, uh, accounts with Lalu Chiba and Gavin Woods and Andrew Feinstein in the, in the first parliament that lo yes. looked at the arms deal was trying to execute that job, but we depended entirely on the good faith of those people. Mm. So we can't have a system where people are demobilized. So please, solution number one, electoral reform is absolutely critical, guys. Yeah, yeah. You can't call the people who sit in that building, that bent down, your representatives, when you don't know who they are and where they live. Yeah. It's gotta be a critical condition of you voting that this system must change. So that is the first thing. The second thing I would say, which I also say in the book, is that you must participate in democratic processes, notwithstanding the defects that we have. Choose an organization, an issue that you're going to care about. Find other South Africans who care about the same issue. Advocate for that cause an institution, you must protect it, you must defend it, you must defend the good people who work in that institution. Kyle and Karen will probably tell you that internal auditors in the public service, they are a threatened species. Yes. They are a threatened species. Somebody has to look after those people because they often see the wrongdoing before the auditor general gets to see it. They get threatened and they get killed. 
So notwithstanding this system that we have, ultimately the guardians of this democracy is you. Mm. It's not the people that we elect, it's you. And that is the work we must preoccupy ourselves every single day to make sure that we take the country back from the political actors back to the people. That's absolutely what we've got to do. Thank you. I think... That's a great seg to ask you just quickly about the Ravonia Circle, and then yes. we'll wrap up and take questions Thank from the floor. Thank you. So the Ravonia Circle is a non-profit company. I've, I've heard people ask if it's going to become a political party. It will not become a political party. And that is not to say there will not be political alternatives as a result. And let me explain that. So two days ago, my colleagues were in the Eastern Cape. So we go to a lot of villages and townships and so on. We were in Philippi just a few weeks ago. And all we do is to try and answer what all of us usually say, especially the professionals and the middle classes to say, we need an active citizenry. So what does a person who wants to be active do tomorrow? Who do they call? What do they talk about? What, what do they do, right? You, you've got to answer that question practically. So what we do, and this is just one of the things we do, is we make sure that ordinary people outside of party political affiliation learn how to participate in democratic politics effectively and proactively too. So at the end of the workshops that we do, each of the activists or that the group of activists that is that participates in those workshops work, walk away with a set of priorities for their community and an engagement plan, proactive engagement plan of how they're going to start getting some of those things improved, doing some things themselves, doing some things in collaboration, and demanding that, that the government starts doing some, of those, uh, doing some of those things. We're doing this and hoping to expand it as far as possible, because 56% of, of eligible voters or registered voters didn't vote in November last year. 56% of registered people. That means people no longer have faith in the democracy. That's also not a good thing because it means we are being governed by a minority. Accounting for all the parties is still a minority in a bad electoral system. And they get to behave the way, the way we do. So that's one of the things. And then on the professionals, Erin, ultimately, you know, sloganeering about problems doesn't solve them. Mm. You, you need practical, implementable solutions, ultimately. Whether it is a defective a judiciary or a government or that sort of thing, Countries educate their people in order to make those societies better. We must not be the society that educates people so that they can be sources of labor only. We can't be, which is why a sense of national purpose and national spirit is important. And I, and I feel in my book that the professionals in particular have defaulted to the negative purpose of education, in my view, or the reductionist purpose of education, mm. rather than being a, a really good citizen who produces good outcomes for the society. Thank you. So I'm hearing electoral reform, know your MPs, insist that they act in the public interest, get involved in causes that you believe in, mine your skills into those, and then lastly, completely slip my mind. <laughs> 
No, it's, they heard it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we're going to wrap up. Just lastly, something I would like to ask is each of you just to quickly say either something that really is a little titbit or a little gold nugget in your book. I mean, I'm going to steal one from Kyle's book. There's a thing about bloated prices for tea and milk and all sorts of things. Karen, your opening chapter with the Man Thule Shakespearean saga is just gripping. Songhezo, you share having worked at Volkswagen back in the day. There's some lovely personal anecdotes. But just something that, you know, is, is kind of a fond aspect of your book or something you feel people don't ask about enough? Um, Karen? Gosh. Um, oh, gosh. I, <laughs> I, think, I think that... I think that's something that I emphasize a lot, and I have tried to emphasize it as much as possible. But I think it was the fact that um, the nuclear deal was stopped not through a big political court case, but through a simple requirement that proper procurement practices needed to be followed, and that um, you know that there needed to be public participation before the intergovernmental agreement with Russia could be signed. And you know that there, there needed to be public participation before ESCOM could be, um, you know, chosen. Then very heavily under the control of Gupta-aligned individuals like Marcella Koko and Brian Malefe and others, um, to procure nuclear energy on behalf of the state. And that issue of a lack of public participation was at the heart of why a lot of those agreements, those, um, those aspects were found to be unlawful. And it's getting back to what Songhezo says, is we have more power than we know. And we are deliberately misinformed about that. We are deliberately made to feel like we're powerless, insignific insignificant, but we aren't. And on a thing like energy, when government releases the integrated resource plan, it has to listen to the submissions of ordinary citizens, ordinary people, groups, et cetera, et cetera. So I would absolutely agree with what he's saying and just say my own experience with this book, with the research, shows the absolute significance that we can play in determining a future for our country that we want and that is in our interests. Yeah, and there's an incredible amount of research that went into your book. You deal with minutes, you deal with audio recordings, your own sit-down with the former president where you get him to disclose an incredible amount of detail on the nuclear deal. Um, Songhezo, I remember the last point. It was around education and the importance of equipping um, South Africans through education to actually contribute, not just yeah. relegating people to cheap labor, effectively. Yes. A tidbit from your book, something that stands out, something that you like to just highlight that you feel gets neglected? Yeah, it's chapter two, okay. Lessons from America. Ah, yes. Lessons from America. As in what not to do. <laughs> not, not just Somewhat. what not to do. I think at a deeper level, I think democracy gets taken for granted. Mm -hmm. So in the United States, you have a situation where somebody who's won fewer votes than the other guy gets to become president. Mm -hmm. And that person gets to appoint Supreme Court judges and so on, who later on give judgments uh, that go against the com popular, popular preferences in, in the population. That might have worked at some point in the past for whatever reason. It clearly doesn't work now. It, it introduces legitimacy problems. The thesis in my book, or the frame in my book, is that I look at the last 27 years and try to work out what has worked and what has not worked. Mm -hmm. There are things that are not working 
right now that we need to fix them. The electoral system is just one way. The other is I propose that we must abolish provinces for reasons I give uh, in the book, but please have a look. <laughs> but the point is, you can't put yourself in the position that the United States has put itself in. More than two centuries later, they are retaining an archaic, old way of doing things, which is now a threat to US democracy. Yesterday, just yesterday, or last night, President Biden gave a major speech on threats to American democracy. And yet you don't hear talk of constitutional amendments to fix the problem. Let me tell you this, any people that bury their heads in the sand and say we will keep trying the same thing that we've always tried because historically we sentimentally attached to it, Nelson Mandela gave it to us, we are going to end up in the gutter. Mm. And we are going to kill each other as they are beginning to do in the United States of America. So that, that's, a, that's a part of my book that people hardly ever ask me about, but the lessons are powerful, I think. Chapter two. Can I just say that yes. I am very sad that this man is now telling us that Ravonia Circle is not going to be a political party because I would totally <laughs> vote for him. So I guess you do also propose... Um, changing certain ministries and removing some. We're running short on time. Kyle, quickly, tidbit, highlight, gold nugget from your book, and then we're gonna open the floor for some rapid fire questions. Um, all three of the most senior people at ESCOM believe that it can be saved. Wow. Yay. I hope so. All right, uh, in terms of questions, uh, please do raise your hand nice and proudly, loudly and proudly, and then when you do pose your question, could you please stand up just so we can get it on camera for the public record. Uh, we've got one here in the front. I see someone at the back, and then last proud hand is pending. Okay, here in the front, I think there's a mic coming to you. Thank you. Please do stand up. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for a wonderful um, discussion. Um, fellow News 24, listen here. Um, one of the things I find fascinating is how South Africa combines idealism and corruption, nihilism and full meaning. Like, anybody, do you guys... You guys have focused on particular kind of examples of corruption. Do you have like a personal theory of why we face so many problems with corruption um, in this country? Because I feel like that's the book I want to read is a history of corruption the last 30 years, yeah. Well, I tell you what, if you combine all three books, <laughs> smush them together, no, uh, quickly, each of you. I think fundamentally that when we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we allowed very senior government ministers who were complicit in the whole-scale murder and genocide of a number of freedom fighters, but also deliberately orchestrated into, um, you know, IFP, ANC violence to literally get away with murder. And there was some kind of deal done which was never fully disclosed to the public. We now see the NPA has been ordered to conduct an investigation into the Mbeki administration's active interference in those cases, why there wasn't prosecution. But I think fundamentally, when Pierre W. Boerter said, I'm not going to testify at the TRC, and F.W. de Klerk was allowed to go there and say, oh, I didn't know about these flak blast murders. I had no idea. Um, it sowed the seeds for a very toxic culture of non-accountability, which haunts us to this day. And I think that in order to confront where we are now, we have to confront that past and demand that the ANC explain why it did that deal and under what terms. Hmm. Sure. The, the other reason, I think, is, is we have a system that uh, neutralizes voters. Mm. 
for five years. The ultimate fear of any politician in a democracy is not being elected. We've taken that fear away. And so there is no consequence yeah. for not doing the right thing. There is no political consequence ultimately. And that has allowed the corruption to fester over time. Mm. With, without minimizing the problem, South Africa does have a bad issue with corruption, but there are a couple of very important points here. The main reason why South Africa has a slightly perceived bigger problem with corruption is because none of us learn from history. It's not the only place in the world that has corruption and we don't read our history books enough and understand how these systems get broken and how things happen over time. The second thing is, and this is a very important point, we, we, we have people in government who came from nothing. That when they became ministers or presidents, they didn't own a house, they had barely any clothes to their name and people had to look after them. So it normalized the situation where a massive mining company can buy a former president a house and no one bats an eyelid. Because, oh no, we can't have the former president living in a, you know, in a little flat in Killarney. We have to buy him a nice house. And it sort of spiraled down from there. And that's where you start seeing people paying 27 rand a liter of milk, of which 10 rand goes into their pocket, and all the way up to giving their stepdaughters billions of rands of contract at ESCOM. It normalizes from the bottom up and I have to agree with Sonkezo here, if we can't hold those people accountable through the ballot, it's never going to change. There is a great um, anecdote in your book on pre-1994 corruption in ESCOM, and a guy who went on this gallivant around the world with bags of money, so it's another reason to get Kyle's book. Um, <laughs> the question at the back, and then I do think we're going to have to wrap up. Thank you. Please do stand. Just a reminder. Uh, thank you all, that was fantastic. Uh, my question's for Kyle. I was wondering if you could elaborate on your gold nugget about... Uh, the leadership at ESCOM's optimism mm. for the mm. future of the company. Okay, so I spent uh, on average between five and six hours with Mr. Andre Dereiter, Mr. Jan Uberolser, and Professor Machoba separately in separate interviews over about two weeks. And I asked them all the exact same question at the end of the interview, because you can imagine for five, six hours, we sat there talking about everything that's wrong with ESCOM. What a danger it poses to the country, how it was broken, what went wrong, and then you, you, know, you talk about 80,000 rand knee pads and toilet rolls for 50 rand a roll and things like that. And I wanted to try and walk away from for those interviews with a sense of whether they stick around because they're stubborn or stupid or do they stick around because they genuinely believe that there is still something there that's worth working on. And all three of them said to me, Uber also said to me, he's seeing light at the end of the tunnel. I, I don't see it, but he says he sees it. Um, <laughs> The writer told me that through perseverance and skill and hard work, anything can be achieved, and he believes that ESCOM will be sorted out eventually. Professor Machoba told me that, and, and in his true style, he told me that some people suffer from not wanting to know what happens in the kitchen, they only want the plate of food, and others suffer from the fact that they have to work in the kitchen. And he says he loves working in the kitchen, and they're busy fixing the kitchen, meaning ESCOM. It's just going to take time, and they need help to do it. Thank you. All right, thank you all so much for coming. Please do remember, um, Karen Songhezo and Kyle will be signing books outside. So once you've bought them, you can go and have them signed. And just to say to all three of you, Songhezo, we hadn't met before. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Kyle, know you from the trenches at the Zondo Commission. Karen, know you from the trenches at the JSC interviews, many trenches, among others. Many so many, many trenches. trenches. <laughs> we are in the gutter sometimes, unwillingly or not. 
Um, and yeah, just thank you so much. Enjoy the Open Book Festival. Buy tickets, buy books, make the most of it, and go out there and take some action in the interest of the country. And you did an excellent job, Erin. Thank you. Very, very thank good. You. Thank, thank you. All, thank you. Thanks for listening. This event was made possible by the support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, the City of Cape Town and the Heinrich Bull Foundation. See you in the next episode.